0: So, this week I sat down with Matt Taylor. He's a professor of microbiology and immunology here at MSU. Matt and I talk about viruses infecting neurons and something called super infection exclusion that occurs when viruses infect neurons. Overall, I find this topic to be extremely interesting. It's so amazing to me that. Viruses can lie dormant in neurons for years and then resurface in something like shingles. There's still a lot unknown about this subject, and we talk a little bit about research and the prevalence of research and discovering and understanding topics like this as a whole. Hope you guys enjoy. So, do you go by... Matt, do you like to be called Dr. Taylor? How do you...
1: <laughs> no, I hate... I, I very much do, do not like being called Dr. Taylor. That,
0: that seems to be um, the general trend with most PhDs.
1: Yes. Um, that's a weird story. But no, I, it's way too formal. I go by anything. Mm. Matt is fine.
0: And you got your Ph.D. at Stanford in I immunology and molecular biology? Uh,
1: microbiology and immunology, yes. I was studying poliovirus back then. So that's the, the irony of your Ph.D. is you don't actually remember what your degree is until you find <laughs> it and put it up on your shelf. And so I actually, the formal uh, is Doctor <laughs> of Philosophy in Microbiology and Immunology. There it is. Um, which is it's so weird to have an office to be able to put that up. Uh, It's the only one, I don't frame them. These are just the boards that they came in. The only (laughs) one that's framed actually is the one I'm proud of, which is the certificate in pig virology um, that my postdoc mentor gave me.
0: What's the story behind that?
1: Ah, okay. So my mentor was Lynn Enquist uh, at Princeton University. And uh, he, a long time ago, started this tradition in the lab that anybody who graduates from the laboratory receives a certificate in pig virology. And so each one is unique to the recipient. He writes a limerick uh, oh, for goodness. the individual. And uh, it, at the end of your time in the lab, there's always a party. And there's usually multiple people leaving. And they each receive and read out loud their certificate in, of pig virology. And he's framed it. So that's the only reason why it's also framed. <laughs> but I'm very, I'm very proud of it because it's unique.
0: Nice. I'm, I'm known to him such secrets were would you like should I read it yeah yeah let's do it let's read it why not Oh, that's wonderful is, oh it's great
1: he, <laughs> he really he really rips me okay so the certificate of pig virology whereas in 2008 one Matthew Taylor entered the Enquist lab seeking the secrets of life unbeknownst to him such, such secrets were intimately intermixed with the secrets of pig virology they all start the same <laughs> Being truly wise yet gullible, he listened to his advisor who whispered, "'Revertants feel the power.'" Being an RNA virologist, Matt was curious to understand what he was talking about. Over the years, the MPT legend was born as outlined in Taylor with a T. Walk into the lab and what do you see? Bay number one and Taylor with a T. RNA viruses were once his domain, but he had the courage to change his refrain. Now, DNA viruses of herpes persuasion make him tingle all over on every occasion. He spent five years watching them coming and going in SCG neurons with axons aglowing. His prowess you see shows up in the dark, where he constantly lights up the room with a spark. Red ones and green ones and dim ones of blue, he watches them all in his SCG stew. He spent all my money, but that is okay. He got, my scope, he got my scope going, and that saved the day. So onward and upward, with chambers held high, Montana is calling the land of Big Sky. In the end, his advisor did not lie. He did learn one good secret of life. However good or bad a situation is, it will change. Now let it be known among all who read this that Matt Taylor has mastered the art of pig virology and has seen the heart of the beast. Witness signed and sealed on this day, the 27th day of April 2013, Lynn W. Enquist, Master of Pig Virology and Keeper of the Secrets. Wow. Yes.
0: How perfect. (laughs) Um, Yeah. That's great.
1: (laughs) And he he keeps this completely. Like, you know you're receiving this before you leave. You have no idea what it's going to say. Really? And like I said, uh, basically right after the Secrets of Pig Virology part and through the rest of it, it's... All unique for everybody. Wow. Um, he's he, Lynn, Lynn. is a fantastic mentor. God, I'm even crying a little bit. <laughs> a little, little whimsical. Aww, that's uh, it's been a while since I've really read it through. Actually, I think I probably haven't read it through since he made me read it out loud the first
0: time. Yeah, you can tell he put thought in there. <laughs> oh like, yeah, he totally put thought into it and everything. And,
1: and that was that's the way he was as a mentor. I mean, he was a fantastic. Uh, he's a fantastic scientist. Yeah. Uh, one of the. People in virology, and herpes, we're all unique. Uh, Lynn is unique <laughs> in that everybody loves him, uh, that he gets along with so many people. Um, he uh, was an extraordinarily busy person. He was the department head uh, during my time there. He was the head, uh, the president of ASV. He was the editor-in-chief of Journal of Virology. He sort of cycled through. Now he's the editor-in-chief for the annual review of virology. He's beginning to wow. uh, end his own time and move into retirement, and I'm sure if he's listening to this, is looking forward to it. <laughs> um, but he was a great mentor, wow. and he he has a he had a fantastic lab, and yeah, he let me spend a lot of his money on uh, getting <laughs> a much better microscope, um, nice. which was critical to all of my experiments. Yeah,
0: so that that little limerick even like mentioned some of the techniques and methods of. GFP and fluorescent tagging, yes. is that correct?
1: Yes, that is, that is absolutely correct. That's the idea of colors. And cool. so it was, it was a, an allusion to many of the experiments that I would do. So I would sit on the microscope for hours, uh, days. I wouldn't sit on the scope for days, but I'd run it for days, mm-hmm. um, looking at the transmission of virus between cells mm.
0: and cool. um,
1: using viruses that express fluorescent protein fusions or markers of infection. Cool. So, which so is a very solid underpinning of all the work that we do in the lab.
0: Nice. Yeah, and so today, I guess, how did you get interested in viruses and why viruses compared uh-huh. to all the other little tiny types oh, yeah. of cells out no, there?
1: That's great. That's a great question. Um, so I'm actually going to point to you. Now, podcasters can't see <laughs> this, but I have all of these books of that I've collected over the years. And um, so the one that's sticking out here is The Hot Zone. Um, the Hot Zone is, if you're not familiar... A book about uh, Ebola virus uh, outbreaks was written by Richard Preston. Um, And it first was published, I think, in the mid-90s. And so uh, many people of my generation read this and got very excited about microbiology and about host-pathogen interactions. And so I was always, uh, my father was a scientist, so I was exposed to the idea of biology from a very early age. Um, That sort of sparked my interest in pursuing microbiology, I was a microbiology, uh, biochemistry undergrad at the University of Washington, and I did a lot of research, but um, it wasn't the most exciting work. I mean, it was really Mm -hmm. great work, um, and it got me into a laboratory and got me laboratory experience, but it wasn't what I was passionate about. Mm. And so when I made that move to graduate school is when I decided I really want to study host-pathogen interactions. And so I... Joined, I, I chose uh, the Department of Microbiology at Stanford uh, because it had this breadth of really good scientists looking at host-pathogen interactions in various systems. Mm. I, because of the hot zone, I was really interested in viruses, but I wasn't like a hundred percent sure, and so mm. I took advantage of the rotational system there uh, to to really look at different viruses, and in fact. Irony of ironies, my first rotation was on a herpes virus. Whoa. Um, and so I was working on cytomegalovirus, it's a different herpes okay. virus. Um, and then my second rotation was actually about the uh, uh, innate immune system of C. elegans, worms, yeah. to bacteria. And so using uh, worm genetics to understand basic uh, signaling pathways in innate immunity. Mm-hmm. I didn't join that lab because it turns out I'm not a worm person. I close my eyes and I just see worms wriggling. It was it was not good. It was not good for my psychology. And so, uh, my third rotation was another virus lab, and it was working on poliovirus. And in fact, I was almost not going to do that rotation. Mm -hmm. Um, I almost thought of uh, just joining one of the first two labs, but this last lab um, working on poliovirus was a great lab, a great environment. And I ended up joining it and, and had no idea that, that that was what I was going to do when I started graduate school. Um, and so, uh, suddenly, three cycles in, I was embedded in poliovirus work and doing Whoa. some very cool things there. So cool. And um, at the end of six years of, of that, I um, realized I still love viruses that I didn't want to look at autophagy again for a long time Mm. and uh, wanted to get into a system that was a little bit more uh, translational, closer to disease processes. A lot of what I had done as a a graduate student had been looking at cell biology of the virus as it modifies the host cell environment. And Mm. it was really cool, but it wasn't in, it was in HeLa cells, immortalized cells. And Mm. so there were some issues that I learned related to to that to that fact and and so i was like i really want to get something more relevant so i was looking for a a place a lab that was really at that interface of maybe not a whole animal model Mm -hmm. but looking at infections in differentiated cell types and a couple of very good labs uh, were recommended to me and ended up uh, having an option to pursue my work in Lynn's lab, and so that's how I got into herpes. It wasn't that cool. I was like, "Yeah, I love herpes." I mean, yeah. I do. I mean, everybody loves herpes, <laughs> but um, it was it was that oppor- it was a combination of opportunity, research, and and also, I mean, Lynn's fantastic. Yeah. Again, Lynn, if you're listening, no. <laughs> <laughs> um So so yeah, it was it was kind of a, this this connection and um i i wouldn't change that for the world
0: so cool so cool it's always so cool in hindsight you know and after sitting down multiple times talking with people how did you get where you are today it's like it's usually like either i was deeply passionate about it and found out i wasn't deeply passionate about it and then found something else that was actually what i wanted to do but more often than not it's there was a awesome mentor involved and it just and that was what paved the way for me to become interested in the subject. And yeah. So, combined with like personal interest for it.
1: And that's really, I mean, that's all, everything in life is you just have to find that thing that yeah. that sparks your passion. I mean, you're going to have, you're going to have rough days. You're going to have days yeah. where you don't want to get up in the morning. And if you've got something that you, you're you passionate and you care about, it's going to carry you through, yeah. uh, you know, what's the old saying? If you've. Do something you love, you never work or something yeah, like that. Yeah, if
0: you do something you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Exactly. Yeah.
1: It's never. It's not like that, but <laughs> no, it's it's pretty close. I mean, yeah. I get to, those, those days when we get that discovery in the lab and I get to see the, something that nobody's ever seen before is just incredible.
0: Yeah. So talking about research, let's, how do viruses and neurons relate? Because that was fascinating to me. I'm aware of neurons, but I didn't know that viruses infect neurons, particularly in the CNS, in the central nervous system.
1: Yes. Um, so yeah, that's actually one of the big things that also attracted me to the projects in, in the lab, um, and, and has kept me going in in pursuing herpes viruses is they are part of this class of viruses that are known as neuroinvasive viruses, mm-hmm. and uh, these are the viruses that have the potential. Uh, capacity to infect neurons and cause disease in the central nervous system, and you know the brain is such a weird place that obviously if you have a virus running amuck in there it 's not going to be a pleasant uh, a disease yeah. and so CNS injury is is of serious concern I mean the herpes virus infection of the of the brain is this dramatic just bloody inflamed tissue which without treatment is invariably lethal and even with treatment people are left with lifelong disabilities they they have neurological dysfunctions that they don't recover from uh, or if they do they have other more significant injuries now that's the most dramatic sort of element of herpes viruses and also among the neuroinvasive viruses you have rabies virus Mm -hmm. uh, West Nile virus the new hot in the streets one this equine Eastern Eastern equine encephalitis virus um, which is part of the family of all the EEVs which is like Western uh, Venezuelan and yeah bunch of them Mm -hmm. they all have this this capacity to uh, move out of their move out of the the you know, either the state or the tissue that they were initially infecting and spread and cause disease in the brain. Mm-hmm. Now, brain injury, and brain disease is oftentimes sort of accidental. Uh, it's it's mm-hmm. not it's not beneficial to the virus for transmission. Right. Or at least not, nobody's been able to show that that is beneficial as a disease process. Uh, And for herpes viruses themselves, CNS infection is extremely rare. Uh, HSV, herpes simplex virus, is part of the alpha herpes viruses. So of the three major classes of the human herpes viruses, the alpha herpes viruses like to infect neurons, and this is where they will establish sites of latency. And so the classical herpes as a punchline joke is where you get the recurrent cold sore Mm -hmm. lesions on your face or your other naughty bits Mm -hmm. because of behaviors. Um, they're doing that because they're moving in, in and out of their sites of latency, which are the sensory ganglia, uh, either the trigeminal or the sacral ganglia or the dorsal root ganglia. Now, I also lead all my classes but when I talk about herpes viruses, raising my hand and saying, does everybody have herpes? And everybody looks at me like I'm insane. Which I am, but um, it's because everybody's been exposed to chickenpox. Right. And chickenpox is another alpha herpes virus that also will go latent in your sensory ganglia. So, in this mm. case, the dorsal root ganglia. Now, when chickenpox reactivates, it results in those shingles lesions. So this is the dermatomal lesion, which covers an entire side, like a region of your your torso or your face, but it has very defined boundaries. Mm -hmm. And those boundaries are defined by the sensory innervations of the DRG. And so it'll break at the midline because you get Mm -hmm. uh, innervations on one side or the other, but not not
0: completely. Not yep.
1: completely. And it's usually bound by sort of a tight banding pattern based on where those sensory axons mm-hmm. extend out to the to the tissue. Yeah.
0: So just a quick debrief. So a virus essentially affects a cell, right, with its own RNA, right? That's kind of how it is? Or is that debatable at the moment?
1: Let's go with genome.
0: Genome. Right. Some genetic information. There we go. Is infected into the host by the virus. Mm-hmm herpes, like chickenpox, pox, for example, when you're talking about dermatomes, the spinal cord leaves, like, neurons leave the spinal cord in certain areas, and those correlate to certain segments of the human body. Correct. And those end at the midline based on dorsal root ganglion, right? And so those can then get infected. And when shingles comes about, which is when chickenpox. Is reactivate, re- reactivated. Reactivate. Mm-hmm. That that is what causes that particular dermatone or area to be what hyper is it hypersensitive to neurons and extremely painful. Well, or, well no. So this is actually stimulus?
1: this is the this is the process that we study the transport process. So the herpes viruses are DNA viruses. Okay. So whoa.
0: Yeah. Let's what? let's yeah
1: really? let's let's uh, let's let's go to the top tier. Here. Okay. So so viruses are not your standard organism right? right living or dead I'm not going to debate but they can be uh, classified into seven different genome strategies based on their mm-hmm. nucleic acid and the configuration of the nucleic acid so there are both RNA viruses and DNA viruses within the DNA viruses there are single-stranded and double-stranded viruses so herpes viruses are the best example of, <laughs> <laughs> of double-stranded DNA viruses um, RNA viruses are are like Eastern equine encephalitis virus, okay. West Nile virus. These ooh, West Nile is positive strand RNA. I, I'm blanking on what EEV actually is, but that's okay. They'll just re- they'll take my card later. <laughs> um, you know, your the viruses a lot of your listeners may know is HIV, which is a retrovirus. It's a unique mm-hmm. uh, virus. It is single stranded RNA that converts into double stranded DNA before integrating. Mm-hmm. How each of these different viruses works are, are unique. But yes, in the process of infection, their, their genome will be delivered into the cell to initiate the process of replication. Some viruses are very active. They only have, it's, it's a binary, it's either infected or not infected, replicating or not replicating. Herpes viruses are uh, Different in that they have different cycles that they can move through. So there's the active cycle of replication or the lytic cycle, and then they go through a a stage of latency. And this is where there is no uh, active viral replication. There Mm -hmm. are viral genes that are expressed, but these viral genes seem to function to keep the virus in a quiescent state. Mm -hmm. And it's this long phase of quiescence that is that prodromal phase between recurrences of infection. So, and this is where everybody gets confused about chickenpox because they're yeah. like, well, how can chickenpox cause shingles? And it's just it's a different disease presentation of the same causative agent, which is the varicella zoster virus. Mm. And so when you are exposed to it as in, your, in its primary form, uh, you will inhale a respiratory aerosol that contains the virus, and it presents as a whole-body rash. And so what's happened there is that the virus has uh, infected the respiratory epithelia, infects uh, these migratory cells that will then sort of seed throughout the body. body. Now, when it makes these lesions, the virus then replicates, and each one of those sores uh, is actually full of lots and lots of infectious virus. But what's also happening is that that virus is now finding the sensory termini in the skin and then migrates Back within the axon to the neuronal cell body. Whoa. When it enters that neuronal cell body, it establishes in a latent form. And so now the genome is maintained separate from the host genome. It doesn't mm-hmm. integrate and it's quiescent. You know, there's no active, there's no, there, you can't find infectious virus, but you can find the genome. Mm-hmm. Events occur that will cause the virus to reactivate. So oftentimes it's a combination of things such as stress. Um, Your immune system becomes slightly compromised. Um, Actually mostly that's it. Just stress and the the loss of a competent immune response Mm -hmm. will provide the environment now that the virus can reactivate and begin to produce new virus which spreads back out those same sensory axons. So for simplex virus, that same process occurs and results in the recurrent cold source. And so there you see much more frequent reactivation, the frequency depends on the viral genome type and the location Mm -hmm. and a number of other factors that have yet to be fully defined. For chickenpox reactivation, it's much more significant of a reactivation event. Thankfully, we don't catch shingles as frequently as some people get cold sores. But when it does happen, it involves all the neurons in the DRG. And so now you have not just one neuron, but hundreds of neurons yeah. spreading virus back out to the tissue. And that's why you get that extensive lesion.
0: Mm-hmm. So sounds super painful,
1: also, and, and, and can be. We? <laughs> well, um, that's one yeah. of the things that actually uh, one of my colleagues in Lynn's lab was studying was how the viruses actually change neuronal activity. So in the process of replication, neurons begin to fire differently, Whoa. and will do so in the absence of stimulus. So for chickenpox, uh, the one of the biggest is the the lesion itself, while terrible. Isn't life-threatening. What is not life threatening whats is the sensory problems that are associated with it. So this is sort of herpetic neuralgia, uh, which can manifest as also post-herpetic neuralgia, which is, becomes durable sensory dysfunction even after you resolve the mm. in infection because your neurons now become rewired so that they're now stimulated in the absence of stimulus. Mm. And so you'll, you, when you, I don't know, if you, have you experienced a shingles reactivation or heard about it?
0: Um, I've heard about it. But.
1: So when people begin, they talk about tingly feelings, yeah. but they also talk about weird feelings where they can't wear shirts or they yeah. they will feel wet when they're dry. Yeah. They'll feel cold when they should be hot. And so that is the manifestation of that sensory dysfunction, mm-hmm. uh, that's associated with it. And it can also be pain in the absence of the actual pain. Mm-hmm. And so people who have a shingles reactivation are now at risk for post neuralgia, which is this this um, pain that does not respond to standard pain medications mm-hmm. because it's not about having some sort of receptor mediated it is the neuron is firing to yeah. the central nervous system that there's a that there's pain in the absence of it
0: do they know if it's a change in activation threshold or kind of like a change in gait? there like gates it is a combination of it things it is a combination yeah. of
1: things i mean the the biggest Thing that we've connected it to is that um, it appears that the neurons will fuse with their surrounding cells, and in that process become dysregulated, mm. and so now you get spo- much more frequent spontaneous oh, yeah. action potentials. The source of that it seems to be fusion related, but we don't know the and the fusion is mediated by viral proteins. Whoa. So, so yeah, so the virus has changed the cell, resulting in this this alteration in normal processes.
0: Ugh. That's crazy. So then herpes simplex type 1 virus, how, so if we're talking about that entering neurons, how, do we know how it enters a neuron? are neurons covered by a myelin sheath or is it going at those nodes of Ranvier?
1: So we don't know. In culture, uh, so so, so the main mechanism for most viruses to enter a cell is receptor-mediated. And so cool. you can get ideas of where the virus gets in by distribution of the receptors. Herpes simplex viruses use a couple of different proteins, but one of the major ones is a protein known as Nectin-1. Nectin-1 in culture seems to be all over the neuron, So it looks like anywhere on a cell the virus can get in. But... In a host, it seems to occur at synapses, not necessarily along the length of the axon, but at their point of synaptic uh, terminus or contact. And when we see the virus spread, it predominantly spreads from uh, at or near synaptic connections. And so you will only see it spread within chains of neurons. Very rarely will you see a cell that's adjacent sort of mid-axon become infected. The cells that those, they, they infect tend not to be permissive to infection, mm-hmm. and so you don't see much propagation. Um, but for the most part, they seem to get in and get out at those points of synapses, which leads to one of the great aspects of using pig viruses, uh, which is their use as uh, synaptic tracers for neuronal wow. circuitry. Cool. And so uh, this has been studied now for decades. Where you can use different uh, pseudorabies virus constructs to specifically trace the synaptic connectivity based on the point of infection and the amount of time that you allow the infection to spread in through, the, in through the host organism. And so you can actually now define the connecti- connectivity of circuits based on its susceptibility to the Whoa. spread of infection.
0: Can you visualize it in oh, a way? Oh, Yes.
1: yes. Oh, so, uh, so classically, you would just look for viral antigens, and so you right. would do staining. But now, in the modern age of fluorescent proteins, right. uh, a number of very powerful uh, fluorescent protein expressing viruses have been used in um, in many different uh, model organisms for tracking the synaptic connectivity. That's so cool. So, that is and I'd like I'd like to think that. You know, the work that we do looking at viral co infection and spread in the nervous system actually relates then to how we interpret and understand uh, the labeling of these fluorescent viruses. Mm -hmm. At least I'd hope. I'm not doing a good job of advertising it.
0: (laughs) That's so cool. That is so interesting. Thank you. Wow. So, in your lab here, though, you study what's SIE?
1: S-I-E, yes. And why is that important?
0: And
1: why do we know nothing about it? Oh, okay. So let's unpack those questions. Okay, so so, uh, as alluded to in the limerick, uh, we were studying uh, mixtures of viruses that would infect neurons. Mm -hmm. And so fully unpacking that, what I got really interested in halfway through my postdoc are the principles that control viral co-infection of cells. So how many viruses get into a cell? How many viruses get out of that cell? And in particular, when we look at neuronal spread, how many viruses get out of an axon and propagate infection fra- to the next cell? We had been studying a lot of transport. We saw lots of, lots of viral particles that would transport down axons, but we had no idea how many would actually propagate to the next cell. So I started working with a great colleague, Orrin Kobler. To, who was working with mixtures of viruses that express different fluorescent proteins. He had started off with uh, the Brainbow cassette. You've probably heard that in neurobiology. I haven't. Okay, so it's a cassette where there's three fluorophores in tandem, and they're, um, uh, they have a Cree-based recombination site between them. So the cassette will express only one fluorescent protein, but it will do so based upon Cree recombination. So it starts red, and it can become yellow or blue. And this had been put into a mouse and enough copies get put in that based on the random nature of pre-recombination, each neuron would have its own unique color profile. And so they were able to, and I think they're still doing this, uh, do um, visual tracing in the nervous system to look at the structure of many neurons simultaneously based on these color profiles. We put that cassette into a pseudorabies virus and began looking at Using that as a a sort of another uh, neurotracing Mm -hmm. tool. Uh, Except we had no idea what co infection, like what color meant in terms of co infection. And so he had figured out that the color of the cell was dictated by the number of viral particles or number of viral genomes that were replicating in that cell. So now we could have uh, one skill set to say we can use a mixed infection of three viruses to determine the rates of co infection. On the flip side, we were also able to use direct labeling of the viral particles. We could track them in neurons and look at their accumulation in infected cells. So as I finished my time in Lynn's lab, we put out this really great paper where we had quantified spread out of neurons into susceptible cells and that there was a very strong limitation on -hmm. that spread. So basically, we saw that leaving an axon, you get predominantly a single virus propagating infection. But we had no idea why. And in, yeah. the, in that paper, we had said, oh, well, it could be related to a process of superinfection infection exclusion, which is known to be late. And actually, did I even say it was? I might have actually said it wasn't. I have to look at it again. <laughs> but uh, when I was driving across country to move here, it was just me and two cats. And so I had a lot of time <laughs> to think. And I started thinking about how would we interpret this? What would be the experiment we use to interpret it? And I realized after making some very convoluted experiments that there was a very simple question that nobody had answered, which is, Mm -hmm. when does a cell, at what time does a cell become refractory to a second virus infecting it?
0: Right.
1: And so the following year, I got a great undergraduate and she didn't know anything and I didn't have a lot of time. So I gave her what I thought was a very simple project. Take two viruses and either infect them at the same time or infect with with one virus first and then wait a period of time and infect with a second virus. The difference between the two is that one was blue and the other one was yellow. And so the great part about the experiment is as long as you do everything right, you always have cells that are infected and you can track those that are infected first and those that are infected mm-hmm. second. And I had assumed that it would be this really late timing, that there would be uh, that cells would be susceptible for, for a very long time. And she mm-hmm. came back and she's like, I, I, the first time point I looked at, two hours after removing the first virus, I didn't get any yellow. I'm uh-huh. like, well, you did it wrong, so go do it again. And she did, mm-hmm. and she came back, and we continued to refine it. And that became the first paper on characterizing superinfection exclusion for herpes viruses. Now, this is something actually that's been known for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the dogma in the field had been uh, based on some very early discoveries about expression work. So if you express one of the viral uh, envelope proteins, this protein called GD, mm-hmm. binds that Nectin-1 protein and mediates entry. Um, if you express that in cells, those cells are resistant to infection. Mm-hmm. And a lot of work had been shown to say, okay, you express GD, it pulls Nectin-1 in, occludes its uh, presence, so the second virus, these challenge viruses can't get in. Nobody had done the experiment to say, well, what if the first virus doesn't express GD? And I think it just became, you know, it it had been so ingrained in the field that, yes, exclusion is mediated by GD. Mm -hmm. And so... We got some GD null viruses and we tested it directly. And we now had all the right tools and we had the right motivation to say, okay, is this two-hour this process where virus second virus is excluded at two hours, is it mediated by glycoprotein D? And we saw that a GD null virus had the same capacity to exclude that second virus as a wild type virus. And so suddenly we had identified a process that was completely unknown. We, didn't, we, we still don't know it. Right. Um, that there's a GD independent mechanism to exclude infection. Wow. And so we have since been scratching our heads about what that all means and, yeah. and what is the actual mechanism. And the reason why it's all relevant is it ties back to that spread in the nervous system. right? The viruses have to propagate from cell to cell. And and work that we've got to publish here soon, we've actually been tracking co-infection in the brain. And okay. we're able to show that, similar to what we saw in the dish, that spreading from an axon to a cell is similarly restricted. We get a, a strong drop in our co-infection rates. Okay. Now, weirdly, if you move in the opposite direction, so what's, so moving from an axon into a cell is what's known as interrogate directed spread. But if you move from... Uh, cell body or a dendrite uh, into an axon, so basically going from the postsynaptic to the presynaptic cell. This is what's known as retrograde spread, and so enterograde spread is limited, but retrograde spread maintains high rates of co-infection. Mm. And so now you get different populations of viruses based on the direction of spread in the nervous system. Mm. We have no idea why. We still have no idea how. Presumably, the retrograde manner doesn't isn't influenced by superinfection exclusion. Whoa. We're not sure why. Um we still haven't demonstrated for sure that the interrogate spread is restricted by superinfection exclusion, but I'm I guess I'm betting my career on the fact right. that it is. Um <laughs> we would love to get that mechanism. So if any of your listeners uh have any compelling experiments or ideas, I would be I would greatly appreciate it. Um But it's what we're actively working towards. And so we're also trying to understand in general some of the other known mechanisms to restrict infection. So the integration of interferon responses. Right. Uh, Interferon being one of the primary um, molecules elicited by uh, infection that is from the host meant to restrict viral replication and spread.
0: Right. It's part of that innate immune response. Exactly.
1: Exactly. Exactly, Um, and it's going to be produced both by the infected cells and the surrounding cells Mm -hmm. to try to limit the the spread of infection. So we've been trying to integrate some of those ideas Mm -hmm. as well.
0: Have you guys ever looked at, you know, maybe it's not something the host cell is doing, but maybe it's something the virus is doing that's blocking the spread of other viruses?
1: We think. uh, We think I. I think. uh, (laughs) I mean, is that? Yeah. So so I think it's a combination of the two. It's definitely the virus. The, the first virus is doing something to actively change that host cell environment.
0: Yeah.
1: Presumably there is a ho- there's a cellular factor that's being modified or tweaked in some mm-hmm. way to prevent the second virus from infecting. Right. Um, at this point we don't know what it is. Yeah. We know that uh, we we've we've got some great data that I'm very excited about about that shows the superinfection exclusion block is preventing the second virus from entering. Cool. That cell. Cool. So whatever is occurring is occurring presumably at the cell surface On the cell
0: membrane. And it's not yeah.
1: it's allowing the virus to attach, but it's not allowing it to get in. Cool. And we don't know why. And and it's been driving me nuts. Because
0: if you could figure that out.
1: Oh yeah, then we could then Then everything. you
0: have immunology for any virus, like you have an immune defense for any virus, almost right?
1: Potentially. It, Potentially. It, 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 yeah. So if we could figure out what cellular pathway is tweaked. And if we could somehow tweak it beforehand, we could prevent the, the entry of many viruses. Yeah. Uh, not just herpes viruses, but also we, could pre- we, we would then have a new way, a new step that we could interfere with herpes virus to, to block its, its spread. Yeah. Yeah. Um, despite the fact that everybody has herpes, and, mm-hmm. and it's all just a big punchline to everybody. Um, right. <laughs> we don't have good therapeutics. We don't have a vaccine yeah. against uh, simplex virus. We do have a vaccine for chicken pox, but uh, we don't have simplex. one for simplex. Uh, current drugs, if you ever listen to the, uh, the, the small print in the commercials, don't prevent the spread and transmission. Mm-hmm. They only inhibit the replication, they reduce the, the duration of disease, but they don't interfere with that cycle of transmission. If we could block that single viral particle getting out of the axon and into that susceptible mm-hmm. cell, we could have a stronger point of intervention to uh, Mm -hmm. limit disease.
0: Yeah and I'm thinking about it on like a prophylactic kind of a treatment method like you just give someone you know a vaccine that prevents infection because it's already saying every cell is infected already so therefore you can't co-infect. Yeah
1: and there's actually there's a there's interesting programs now using defective interfering particles which are Viruses, virally derived products that look like viruses, act like viruses, but antagonize replication. And so, so the, the dips, which um, there's some great research going on in this campus on these, these dip particles and their ability to be used as a therapeutic. Mm. Excuse me.
0: So interesting. So when an, a virus enters a neuron in any other cell in the body, that would elicit an immune response, right? Right. Right. But the nervous system kind of has, it's like, it's a different kind of immune response with the nervous system, right?
1: It very much is. Most cells are sacrificial, Mm. right? Uh, Neurons are not. Neurons, we've put a lot of time, energy, and effort into developing, differentiating, making these very long connections. Those connections, those synaptic connections can be on the order of centimeters and, you know, bigger organisms, meters. I mean, the giant axon in squid is huge. I mean, it's giant. So yes, we don't have the standard sort of response to viral infections. Mm-hmm. There are um, it's a different it's a different cell, it's a different animal. No, yeah. uh, it, it and so the the responses tend to try to suppress the virus from replicating, but not eliminating that neuron itself. Okay. No, herpes viruses have taken advantage of that, and they can get past those initial defenses, allow that cell to persist, and there's a lot of debate about whether or not upon reactivation that the neuron still persists or if Mm -hmm. it's lost in that reactivation event. Um, but it's, it's, it's definitely studying, uh, responses, you know, innate responses and even the adaptive response, Mm -hmm. uh, in nervous system tissue, uh, during infection is very different than what you would learn in respiratory epithelia or the gut epithelia or just in the skin. So, um, it's still uh, there's a there's a lot of uh, labs in the country that are studying those 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 exact questions. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah, because I can't imagine the brain wanting to elicit an inflammatory response for an uh, infection.
1: Except that's exactly what happens when herpes really? gets into the brain, when it causes disease. There's okay. there's some debate there, um, but in, in our standard model of it, if the virus gets into your brain. It causes a very inflammatory disease, Mm -hmm. and so you get a lot of activation of the surrounding cells, the glial cells. So you get microglia, which are sort of like the uh, macrophage-like. You get a lot of astrocyte activation. You you see a lot of inflammatory cytokines, and you get a lot of swelling, and because that's the I mean, as I tell students in my classes, the brain is a closed environment, and PV equals NRT applies to that when it's a closed system. And so as that inflammation occurs, it doesn't have anywhere to go. Mm-hmm. And you, that's where you get a lot of that incredibly Ence- destructive uh, response. Yeah,
0: hence the encephalitis part of EEE.
1: Exactly. <laughs> okay. exactly. So um, and, and, and And that's where it becomes very interesting about these neuroinvasive viruses mm-hmm. is how they get to the brain and the kinds of responses that they elicit there. Now I said this from controversy because there's new evidence that seems to suggest that herpes gets to the brain more frequently than we previously uh, believed. uh, That we're seeing herpes viruses associated with uh, Alzheimer's lesions and other sort of neurofibrillary tangles, and it's unclear if it's the virus gets there and initiates the, the the pathology. Or if the pathology's there and it helps recruit the virus, but without causing uh, the, the extensive illness that's normally associated yeah. with it. But there's a common joke that we have now. Uh, so that we, had, um, uh, we have a nice little herpes meeting in Colorado, <laughs> and there's a psychologist that shows up there. And he keeps telling us about how people with herpes have cognitive deficits on many of his exams. And so it becomes a running joke that, well, we're all deficient. Um, <laughs> and, and, but it's a very interesting correlation yeah. uh, in terms of whether or not you have, you're harboring latent herpes genomes. Not right. severe infection, right. we're just talking anybody who may have HSV, be HSV antigen mm-hmm. positive, seems to have, it's not, a, it's not huge, but it's statistically significant reduction in their, their cognitive function. Mm not to the point of like gross deficiency yeah. I mean yes I'm a drooling mess but <laughs> that's independent of my herpes virus status right. <laughs> but it's this interesting idea that these long dwelling infections that can get into our brain are actually causing changes to our behavior interesting. which is true for a lot a wide range yeah. of microbes
0: Yeah. I wonder I wonder if it has anything to do with depression or or like dementia or because de- you know new literature is coming out that inflammation may be the cause of depression and blah 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 and you hear that you've you've, like i've even heard it and i don't even research it that much (laughs) and i'm like this is interesting so i wonder if that is it's it's
1: probably all part of it right i mean you have you have these diseases which can have many different Point sources. Many different manifestations. Inflammation is probably one element. Obviously, genetics plays into there because your genetics influences how you respond. Mm -hmm. Your microbiome influences how inflammatory your responses are. Uh, Down the hall, uh, we have researchers who look at how bacterial metabolites influence disease outcomes both within the gut and in the whole body. Mm -hmm. And so I think when it comes to these big diseases like dementia and depression, where we don't know, yeah.
0: mm-hmm.
1: we don't know why it's there. We can say, okay, if we throw a drug in and we can make it better, yeah. but we don't know actually what, what is out of whack. Right. And I think that's also what attracted me to the herpes viruses is mm-hmm. that, is that they have evolved to work in this very complex system of the brain and that possibly they can be used to help to, 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 um, Untangle or decom- yeah. deconvolve some of the complexity in those systems. Yeah. So.
0: Super interesting. Yeah. Now I'm just envisioning like little viruses going through neurons, and then their RNA and DNA going through, and us like tracking it and being like, oh, these are connected, and we didn't even know. And.
1: And that's exactly what I think <laughs> about all the time. No, I, I, that's 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 yeah. I mean, you know, if you want to talk about dreaming, I'd love to have a herpes virus that could go through and fix it. Yeah. Right, because it, it herpes virus is. Her- herpes viruses love neurons. I mean, they, they and they they work really well within the neuron. They are designed, they've evolved, not designed, cut yeah. that. They've evolved to only cause a very limited amount of damage. And if we can somehow tweak them to be less damaging and also deliver something that's going to correct a molecular dysfunction, there's a whole range of yeah. of illnesses that could be, could be, greatly improved through such a therapeutic. Yeah. So I'm
0: I'm mentioning like, like beta tau and tau proteins and beta amyloid plaques being like untangled or disentangled or prions. Like if you could stop a prion with a virus, Mm -hmm. you know, just halt that protein.
1: Or have an engineered protease that targets those so that even though they normally can't be chewed up, this is is something designed that's delivered by the herpes viruses. So now the herpes goes through and cleans up all of these problems yeah. or restores dopamine expression in a Parkinson's patient or uh, delivers a functional uh, receptor to mm-hmm. people with, with many of those uh, receptor illnesses or, or, or uh, uh, overexpresses serotonin, you know, something, some other way other than just throwing on a whole lot of drug into a yeah. system and hoping it all figures itself out. Yeah. that we can be a little bit smarter yeah. about this.
0: Yeah, because you could use, theoretically, in theory, you could use herpes, a modified herpes simplex, as like a neuro, like, not making any sense right now, but oh, no, as, you're a making gene, comp- as a gene, like, as a genetic you. target. <laughs> like, you could use it as a genetic modifier for yeah. gene therapy, for neurons specifically. Quite. Whoa. Right.
1: And, and people are using... Adeno-associated viruses, yeah. so AAV9 is one of the new ones. There are groups out that are trying to make ones that are neuron-only, so make neurotropic, exclusive mm-hmm. AAV vectors, um, and and I, I just I, I I think it's great work, but I just say to myself like it'd be better. I, better yeah. I should do this <laughs> is right. to make a herpes virus vector which is not yeah. lethal but now is tamed right. to the point we can use it for that function. Yeah.
0: Kind of an attenuated herpes virus because nature has already made it perfectly compatible with the nervous system.
1: And this is not without precedent. So right. herpes simplex virus is also used as an anti-cancer agent and in oh. fact there is a commercially available anti uh, ant, uh, uh oncolytic agent designed off of a herpes virus it's an attenuated herpes virus it's um oh, it's not is it Merck? i'm sorry Merck. um <laughs> it's, is it who is it oh. anyways amgen 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 okay amgen made or has <laughs> has has developed and is delivering a, it's la herpavec laherpavec. It's an attenuated herpes virus vector that expresses an immune molecule and so they inject it into the tumor and the virus replicates, expresses this molecule and now the immune system comes in and destroys oh, that excellent. tumor. And so uh, so yeah so it's not without precedent that we atten- oh. that to have a attenuated herpes virus as a medical therapeutic. right
0: You just got to figure out. Some more of the things before you can just like start giving it to. Somebody. Yeah,
1: I don't want to just start giving every. I mean, I do want to give everyone
0: herpes. I really do.
1: Um, you can ask any one of my classes um, experimentally. I want to experimentally give everyone herpes. Um, it's it's. Uh, but yeah, it's, it, There's I I see a lot of potential yeah. in in these in this in this way of thinking. Wow. So. But we don't understand basic questions about exclusion, about transmission, yeah. about co-infection, yeah. and so we're. My lab is trying to answer some of these basic fundamental things. How do we? Con- how does the virus control itself? Mm. And it, by understanding those, we will ha- be able to design a better vector right. for for use yeah. down the road.
0: This is why I love sitting down and talking to people because you realize the complexity of research and how it's just built one layer by layer by layer, and like one primary understanding leads to another leads to another so first you have to know like what is this how does it work how can we like adjust it and does that work you know for something to be useful and yeah it's so cool to be able to sit down and see it happening and talk to someone who's doing it so
1: (laughs) well i'm trying we'll (laughs) see we're we're still just at that foundational level of just trying to figure out what the question the right way to answer the question the right way to even ask the question right uh, you know, I th- I, there, are so many, there are so many things we don't understand about herpes virus transmission right. in neurons that we, we just need to figure it out. Yeah. And so that's what we're trying to do.
0: So cool. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for sitting down and taking time out of your day to go over herpes and yep. talk about viruses.